The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. This is a kind of a standalone message. We're going to begin a study on Jonah beginning next week. But I think one of the things that is lost or gets lost in the busyness of this day and age where there's just lots of smartphone distractions and we're constantly busy, constant visual stimulation, and we don't know how to be quiet. And even when you're out in the glories in creation, so often when you see people, they have earbuds in their ears and they're missing all the sounds of God's creation. And God compares himself to his creation, and this is one of God's main books to get our attention. Alan Noble's written a book called This Disruptive Witness, and he talks about these shocking things where something happens to us and we don't even have categories to see what we're taking in. First time Sam Storms, a pastor, before he was a believer, the first time he looked through a uh, telescope, he started weeping. And the reason he wept is he didn't have categories. It was a disruptive witness. He didn't even know what he was looking at, but he knew it was so glorious that he began to weep. That who made this? I had a professor in college that the beginning of his conversion was snorkeling. And when he got below water, and if you've snorkeled, all of a sudden when you get below water, it gets real quiet real fast because your ears are underwater. And then you realize, I don't belong here. There's, if you've been to a, a reef where you just see tons and tons of fish and you're intruding on their territory and they're really happy. Do you know what God says about Leviathan in Psalm 104? Leviathan is the sea monster and we don't even know what the sea monster is, whether it's a big whale, whether it's crocodile or it's one of these. And if you, there's some freaky things out there if you've looked at some of these sea monsters just Google that sometime. I mean, there are some really creepy things that are over 30 meters long that would eat you no problem. And <clears throat> God says about Leviathan that he made the Leviathan and formed it to play in it or in the sea. He just made it to play. I love going to the, to, when I'm at the zoo to watch the otters. Anybody seen the otters at the zoo? Do well, you know what the otters do? They play. They just are having a blast. When have you gotten so close to the glory of God and his creation that you knew, like, this is God. This is, this is God's doing. You get close to something, you see his glory, and you're blown away by it. I had something happen to me recently where I was cycling, and I was on Brookville Road. And some of you guys know the cut through between Olney and Laytonsville, and there's a one-lane bridge and I was coming back, and as I come across that bridge, there is a huge bird on the bridge, on top of this bridge, and it's a crane. And so when he sees me coming, and they kind of do everything gracefully and in slow motion, this crane sees me, turns, and decides, I guess I'll fly away. And so the crane just, fufloof, fufloof, and he starts to fly away. Well, he flies the same direction as me. Well, and I'm doing 16 miles an hour, and I fly directly underneath this crane, and he's three feet above my head. 
and we stayed together for about 100 yards. And I'm feeling like I'm flying because I'm just experiencing the glories of this crane that I could reach up, he's right there. And it's just, foo-floof, foo-floof. <laughs> it was just amazing. Like, and I just, thank you, God, this is incredible. The glory in his creation. Well, let's compare these glories with who God is. So let's look at this text together and be reminded of God's special and general revelation, how he speaks to us everywhere. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust, the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would, would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it, and a goldsman overlays it with gold and cast it, cast for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has, <clears throat> their, excuse me, <clears throat> has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But those, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to see, and may we shrink and see in your greatness and realizing, Lord, how small we are in comparison, and to know that Jesus became like us in every way, yet without sin. We thank you for your glory. Help us to behold it now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a lot here, isn't there? Let's jump in. Well, as we talked about right here from the beginning, 
God is using these, all these comparisons to get Israel's attention. Israel was dealing with fear, lots of fear. They feared the nations. There's over 45 references to nations in this book. And there's this constant reference to Israel wanting to call off to look to Egypt for help and, and afraid of Assyrians and then afraid of Babylon. And the chapter before is a, is a fear of Babylon. And we don't really have so much a fear as a nation because other nations tend to fear us. But imagine if you're this little country like Israel and you've got these big, looming, impending nations like Assyria and Babylon and they're afraid because they feel like grasshoppers before them. And God's showing up telling them, these nations are what to him? What are the nations? They're nothing to him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness, verse 17. He's saying all the nations, the sum of humanity. He's saying, you know, all the empires, all the dynasties, all the kingdoms, all their pomp, all their splendor, all their grandeur, all their glory, it is less than nothing. That's beyond, that's over in the below zero category now. They're nothing to him. They're insignificant. They're inconsequential. There are currently 195 to 197 nations in the world today. God says they're less than nothing. Their emptiness. And then he says that, that God is the one in verse 23 who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. We're told in scripture that the heart of the king is like streams of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Have you ever just kind of dropped a stick, you know, down into the water and there's a lot of white water and you just kind of wonder, where's that stick gonna go? And then let's repeat that. You know, you try it a few more times and every time the stick goes a different direction and God says, I am sovereign over all of that. And that's how he's controlling. He controls kings and their destinies. He brings princes to nothing, makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, verse 24, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. All the political so-called heavyweights we see are at best featherweights. They have no staying power. We are all a big dandelion before God and God goes and all the little things go everywhere. That's what God is saying compared to him. And yet Israel is fearing these nations and feeling like a grasshopper and God's saying in verse 22 that I'm the one who sits above the circle of the earth and all its inhabitants are like grasshoppers so do not fear what they fear and do not be in dread of what they're in dread about fear the Lord let the Lord be your fear is what he says and so God is relentlessly comparing himself to his creation as we Consider with the children just a few minutes ago. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Well, consider this. There is a trench in the Arctic Ocean that is 17, below 17,000 feet underwater. In the Indian Ocean, there's a depth that's over 25,000 feet deep. 
The Atlantic Ocean has a depth of over 28,000 feet, and the Pacific Ocean has a depth of over 36,000 feet. There are these huge trenches, okay? There are 326 million trillion gallons of water, okay? That's, would you say that's a lot of water? Um, the Pacific Ocean is twice as big, bigger than twice the size of the Atlantic Ocean, and there are 187 quintillion gallons of water in the Pacific Ocean. So that's 187, and then just add 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, 18 zeros after that, just to get the gallons of water in the Pacific Ocean. The Atlantic Ocean, oh, it's small. It's only 82 billion billion gallons. And God just says, he can do this with the scoop of his hand. And then he says to us, who's marked off the heavens with a span? You know, God is the one who's, there's only one command in this whole passage. Did anybody catch what it is? One command in the whole passage. Everything else he's teaching, instructing. He asked 24 questions. That's how many I've counted in this text. Because some of them are like three questions in one. But there's 24 questions, one command. And the one command is in verse 26. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number. You got people today that, you know, they, they thank their lucky stars. They look at horoscopes. Are you kidding me? The stars aren't controlling your destiny. God controls the stars. He's the one who created them. He brings them out by number. He names them all. There are no AWOL stars in the whole universe. He's over all of them. And let's think about this as we look up for a minute. If you were a jet plane, a jet plane flies roughly 500 miles an hour, how long would it take you to get to the moon? Flying 24-7, we're gonna go straight to the moon flying 500 miles an hour. How long would that take? I mean, that's the closest thing that we can see. That's only 240,000 miles away. That'd take 21 days. So now let's go to the sun. 500 miles an hour, 24-7, we're going to the sun. How long does that take? 21 years. All right, let's go to Pluto, the furthest end. I mean, poor Pluto. Sometimes they don't even get named a planet. It takes poor Pluto 248 years to revolve around the sun. And by the way, I mean, while you're looking up for a minute, do you know how fast we're traveling right now? Just like that, we just moved 18, 18 miles, 18 miles, 18 and a half miles a second. We are currently traveling at 67,000 miles an hour right now. You realize that, right? We're sitting here, we're booking right now. We're going 67,000 miles an hour right now around the sun, okay? Do you think he's got things in charge? I mean, he's, he's a little bit sovereign right now, okay? And so as we're booking at 18 miles, eight and a half miles a second, but let's just pretend we're this jet plane and now we're heading to Pluto. That takes nine hundred years to get to Pluto. How long do you think it would take to get to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri? Let's go to the nearest star. I mean, we can only see 4,000 stars with our naked eye. That's it. But one of those is Alpha Centauri, and we're a jet. We're going to go there 500 miles an hour, 24-7. How long would it take to get to the nearest star? 
six million years. That's the nearest star. We don't even know how big our galaxy is because the Hubble telescope can't take it all in and it's telling us that it's moving away from us. And, and we don't even know. But we know that the furthest galaxy away is 13.3 billion light years away. And you remember the light year is traveling at 671 million miles an hour. It takes 100,000 years just to get to, to, to the end of our solar system. Do you think God knows what he's doing? Our God is big. 200 billion stars, 300 billion stars in our galaxy, and yet there's billions of galaxies. God knows what he's doing. And so he says to us, lift up your eyes and see who created these. He's saying, who do you compare me to? Who do you compare me to? You want to compare me to an idol? Are you kidding me? An idol is something that you made, and God is saying, I'm the one who made you. God is the everlasting God. In theology, we call this aseity. He has life in himself. We are utterly contingent. He is not. He will, with this creation, he says, will roll up like, like an old pair of pants. He's just gonna discard it when, when, this, when this universe is done, but God is, is never done. He's forever and ever. He's the same. And he's saying, who do you compare me to? And he talks about this craftsman in verse 19 and 20, about this, this one who, who, if he's really a good craftsman, he makes a gold idol, or if, or if not, he makes a silver one. But if he doesn't have much money, then he makes a, a wood one. But either way, this craftsman is setting up an idol that will not move. This is a dumb idol that doesn't do anything, it can't hear anything, it can't speak anything, it can't give anything. It is nothing, does nothing, and it is utterly dependent on the craftsman who made it. And people would worship something like that. And God is saying, I have made all of creation, all of the universe. Who are you going to compare me to? And so then he says, He's marked off the heavens with a span. Who's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, he says in verse 12. It's like child's play. I meant to have a little bit of Play-Doh up here. You know, you take the Play-Doh and you, and you take it out of the cup, right? And you pour out the Play-Doh. And when you're done, what do you do? You put it back together and you put it back in the cup and you put the lid back on. And God says, he's enclosed the dust of the earth, all the sand, all, you know, all this. It's just child's play to him. He puts it back in, nothing to him. He has weighed, who has weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? How many mountains do you think there are on this earth? Scientists tell us there's over a million mountains. Now, how do you determine the difference between a mountain and a hill? That's a good question. The U.S. apparently has a distinction that if you're over 1,000 feet, you're a mountain. If you're under 1,000 feet, you're a hill. Okay, so there's 73,000 mountains just in the United States. And there's over a million mountains. And the earth weighs, you wanna hear what the earth weighs? You ready? 
It's 13, then you gotta put 21 zeros, and then put LBS after that, okay? I think that's quintillion, I'm not even sure, but it's, it's a lot. And God says that he weighs the mountains in scales. He's got a little scale, you're gonna put the mountains on there. All right, Everest and all these other million mountains, come on over here, I wanna, wanna weigh you. That's what God says, it's nothing to him. He, he, he can weigh it all. And he can keep it in such a way that, you know, the scale went like this back in the day, right? And it all balances and rotates perfectly. God's got that taken care of. And so this is all going somewhere, guys, because it's all big God or not. It's all leading up to the problem, and the problem is verse 27, and the problem is solved between 12 and 26 and 28 to 30, 31. But the problem is 27, and the problem is what? The problem is we have a little God. That's every problem we will ever have. What's the problem? Little God, puny God, small God. Our God is too small. The problem is why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? He really doesn't understand what's go- what I'm going through and he's given me something that's too hard and too difficult for me and I can't handle it. And God has to remind us from 12 to 26 and 28 to 31 that he's a little bit bigger than we imagined. But we all got a 27 problem, right? And so God has to get our attention. And so he says in verse 13 and 14, who has measured the spear of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? These are all questions related to wisdom. Look at all the different terms that are used here. Measured is the word directed or counsel, consult, understand, taught, justice. They're all terms that deal with the wisdom of God. And the idea is that, has God ever learned anything? Has God ever needed a do-over? Does God ever need more time? Does he need a mulligan? Let's, let's do this again. Does God ever need that? Does he need a cabinet? Does he need a board of directors? Does he need you to give him a big idea that he hasn't thought about yet? Does he need a lifeline? Does he need to make a phone call? What do you think? Who discipled God? Who, who impacted God? Who was influential to God? Who, who really helped him in a pinch? Who was there in his time of need? Has God ever erred? Has God ever made a mistake? Has he ever forgotten something? Has he ever just, oh, I forgot, I forgot. He wouldn't be God if any of those things were true. So these are rhetorical questions that all that is happening to us is by divine decree. He's got it all in control. Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket. All right, so I got my bucket. Here it is. All the nations, maybe we can get a drop. That was way more than a drop. Oh, there goes Nebuchadnezzar, there goes Napoleon, there goes Charlemagne, there goes all the nations, all the empires that ever were. Is that gonna affect our scale reading? 
here, this is all the nations. What do you think? Are they, are they gonna impact the scale reading? He says they're like dust, and he even compares them to fine dust. And I went over this with Kara. She said I shouldn't do this because Kim would get really upset at me if I did this, but this is my razor, and I'm not gonna open it and dump out the fine dust because that would really offend some of you. But the idea here is if I did that, and I tap that, and it, I already emptied out the hair already, but if I were just to tap that and down in there, do you think if I did that that it would affect the scale reading of, of the scales? This is what God is saying to Israel to get their attention. He's saying all the nations, they're just like the little bit of dust. They're nothing compared to God. Why is God doing this? Why is he bringing this chapter to God's people. Why is he bringing it to their attention? Because we live in a world that we just get myopic and smaller and smaller thoughts about God. And we get smaller and smaller thoughts about God. Guess what begins to grow? Our fears, our worries, our problems. Our problems get bigger and bigger. But when God gets big and glorious for who he is, and the only way that we can praise him adequately is to know him as he is. And so he's made this incredible world of glories and beauties and all these things. And the tendency of mankind is to worship them, is to worship the creation instead of the creator. And God is saying, you can't compare me to any of these things. I made them, they are utterly contingent upon me, and he is not upon them. And he's made all these things, and he's good. And so he's gotta remind us that these nations and all these things that we fear, they're inconsequential, they're insignificant. And so, he even says his, in his greatness, verse 16, that he says, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Now, Lebanon was this vast, vast, thick th forest. It was known for its incredible miles and miles and miles and square miles upon square miles of dense, thick forest. And God says, if you were to take all of those forests and offer a sacrifice and take all the animals from all of this area and, and sacrificed all of those thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of, of animals, would that be enough to be a worthy offering of a burnt offering offered up to God that would be worthy of his glory? And what does God say to that in verse 16? It would not suffice, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Whom will you liken me? Who will you compare me to? Well, let me tell you about one who came from heaven to earth. And maybe heaven's just a little bit further than we thought about. I mean, the Bible says in Psalm 8 that he set his glory above the heavens. His glory is above that. And even the heavens of heavens, we are told, can't contain God. God has to condescend to be in heaven. How much more does Jesus have to condescend from the heaven of heavens to come down to this earth and to become like us in every way? He knows our every need. 
He hears our prayers. And Jesus became weak. And he became sin on a cross. Because we all have a problem that we've rebelled against this God. The very light of the knowledge that God has shown in creation. We have suppressed that truth and unrighteousness, the Bible says, even though he's made it plainly clear to all of us that there is a God, that day after day, his testimony is pouring forth speech and the, and the skies proclaim his handiwork and the heavens declare the glory of God. They are testifying to us that I didn't jump up in the air and put that star up there and neither did that so-and-so great professor who told me there's no God. He didn't put that star up there and nobody put that star up there. God put that star up there he put all those stars up there and Jesus came from beyond all that and he entered into this world in time space and history and so let this passage speak to our need at the very end in verse 27 to 31 why do you say O Jacob and speak O Israel that my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God God loves us so much and he loves this world that he made, that he came to his own, but his own knew him not. He came to us bringing his glory, unveiling that glory, and he comes to make a sacrifice for our sins on a cross, to make us right with God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint or grow weary. He's all powerful. His understanding is unsearchable. He's all wise. And who does he help? He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Does that, do you qualify? Does anybody in here qualify? I, do, are you faint? Are you weary? Because even youths, even the very tough ones and the ones who think they got everlasting energy they don't they, they're, they're going to faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted everybody is weak and so he says but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint so this passage has this wonderful end, ending of flying running and walking and not being weary how come we're not experiencing more of that? I think it's because we short circuit verse 31. We have to wait for the Lord. Those who wait for the Lord or hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. We have to take by faith what we can't see yet by sight and wait for God. We are looking for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And the creation is longing for that. The creation is longing to be redeemed. We are longing to be redeemed, and we are to wait for it with patience in this age, knowing that God is working all things together for good for his people. But we see that our God is an all-sufficient God, and we praise him that he would love us enough to condescend to send his son. He who is so much greater and transcendent became this close to us. He loves us. Let's trust him. Let's pray. Lord, you speak loudly through your creation and loudly through your word and sometimes you speak softly. Help us to listen. Help us to be still. Help us to be quiet. 
Help us to learn what it means to take a Sabbath rest, to find rest for our weary souls. We recognize today afresh that you are the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. We ask that you would give us strength for we are weary. Would you increase our power for we are faint and help us to trust you with all the various things that you take from us, things that you give to us and withhold. May we trust you. May we love you and may we bring you glory as your creatures. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.